I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My guest today is... Uh, LeBlanc. He's the founder and director of an organization called Nates. We're going to put a link to, uh, to that on, on the website. You'll, you'll hear more about it in, in the interview. We talk about burnt oatmeal today, uh, strangely enough, and advanced educations for First Nations, uh, Inuit and Métis folk. Uh, we talk about faith and about education and about ca- capacity building and the residential school problem in Canada here and, 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 and what it means to live with compound world views. I mean, we get into a whole uh, lot here and clearly we're going to have to have a part two uh, with Terry at some point down the road. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, ethics and about morality and about, um, about creation I, and, 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 and the reconciliation, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada as well. And So uh, listen in. I think you're going to learn a ton. You're going to learn a lot more about uh, this organization that Terry works with and some of the great work that they're doing. Uh, and um, one last thing that we talk about, and that is uh, the, the, the relational component to pretty much everything we do. And it almost sounds trite and almost sounds cliche, but uh, listen, buckle up, uh, listen in. Uh, davidpecklive.com, rabble.ca for more uh, face-to-face uh, interviews, and thanks for joining us again today. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by another very special guest today, as usual, because I only invite special guests onto this show. Uh, Doctor? Dr. Terry LeBlanc. Yeah, Next. just Terry's fine. Is Terry fine? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does, does, do, do you ever get introduced as a doctor and, and, and kind of get embarrassed about that? Or? Well, it's not an embarrassment. It's... Uh, you know, part of part of the excursion that we've been on in the in the indigenous world is certainly to pursue advanced education. I mean, uh, Blair Stonechild's book uh, Bi- uh, "Education is the New Buffalo," uh, you know, sort of popularizes the idea that that to a certain extent we have to find our way into the educational world to to 
uh, see how it is that as indigenous peoples in a contemporary environment, we engage our traditional values, philosophies, ideologies uh, in, in, in some kind of meaningful way. And part of that has been pursuing education. So having said that, we're trying not to sort of embrace the ivory tower mentality of that, where right. I've climbed my way to the top, so you have to call me doctor, right. but rather see it more in, in, in many respects, more as a contemporary uh, sense of um, uh, repositories of certain amount of learning and wisdom that we've entered into that others have held before us, and now we're simply the the uh, stewards of that. So, so it, it just trying to, I mean, not trying to be farcical about it, yeah, but just, yeah, no, for sure. just trying to, you know, you keep to, keep some humility in the yeah, whole no, package, you know. You don't have to call me doctor, but I would appreciate sir. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody calls me sir, I always yeah. say, no, that was my dad's name. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, Terry, about what you do. I mean, tell me a little bit about your past, but you're, I mean, you're a director of a, an organization called Nate's. Uh, you're working on First Nations issues. I mean, I'd, I think I'd call you an advocate or an activist. I mean, uh, you, you, before the tape was running, uh, the recorder was running, you had a great line about burn oatmeal. I hope you share it. But but tell me, you're, you write, you speak. That's how you and I first met some, I don't know, 11 years ago or something. Yeah, it's been a while. Mm -hmm. And so, and we've crossed paths from time to time. So, so yeah, tell me a little bit about your path over the last few years. Well, in the last uh, 20 years, uh, a, a number of us, myself and, and a number of uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit people from within the North American context, uh, began this journey to, to create, um, um, uh, well, I'll call it an organization that would allow us to explore uh, and to write and to think theologically, missiologically, biblically, sociologically, anthropologically, and all of those things uh, within a frame of reference that is indigenous, um, but also has some connectedness to um, not only our, our own traditions, but uh, you know, the traditions of faith that we have uh, individually and collectively embraced within a broader paradigm of what I would say is the Christian community. Um, and of course, if you're familiar with the residential schools era, you know that Christianity and church were used as clubs and weapons. Um, and so the message of Jesus became weaponized in some respects to, to subdue us and to uh, seek to assimilate us and so forth. So we're trying to undo some of that. At the same time as hanging on to the centrality of the message of Jesus, uh, in our own situations, in our own lives, that allow us uh, the liberty to explore what that means uh, from within our own sociocultural and and uh, and spiritual contexts. So I've been I've been a part of this group of people who've been pursuing this for now for 20 years. Formally, uh, Nates has existed for 16 years. It's it's uh, uh, originally known as the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Now, because we do more than theological studies, we do uh, investigations into community capacity building, community development, and a whole range of other things. We simply refer to it as NATES, an indigenous learning community. Uh, so, so a majority of my effort is focused there. I do uh, a lot of teaching and uh, writing and research uh, around topics of concern to us. We publish an annual journal, host an annual symposium. This year it's at Tyndale University College and Seminary, June 2nd to 4th, uh, focusing on education this year again. Uh, we, we haven't done that for a lo long time, looking at what, is, what does it mean to be educated 
in, as, as a Native person, as an Indigenous uh, uh, man or woman. And, uh, and then we also focus on community uh, capacity building, community development initiatives uh, that, uh, that facilitate Indigenous peoples and communities toward health and well-being, uh, dealing with the aftermath of residential schools, uh, dealing with the uh, the inadequate levels of funding in communities to care for the needs of, of populations, dealing with youth and their need for hope. Uh, so we have a variety of program structures and uh, emphases dealing with those under the banner of Indigenous Pathways. So you're pretty busy. Uh, yeah, I keep out of mischief. So isn't Christianity a white man's religion? I mean, what do you do with that? What well, do you it do? is. You know, I love what you said about it being weaponized. It's, the message of Jesus was weaponized. That's an awesome line. There should be T-shirts and bumper <laughs> stickers. Because um, it, it really reduces it to what I think happened in so many places around the world. Yeah. So I, I find it a bit of a contradiction in a way that you're this First Nations um, uh, guy who was won over by a, the white man's religion. Well, is that, is that a fair? Is that a fair uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's a fair frame. Yes, thanks. Yeah, good. Maybe not a fair conclusion, right, but good, but good, a fair frame. Good. Uh, I think that a number of us a number of us met with Paul Martin, former Prime Minister Paul Martin, years ago, mm. and, and maybe this is a good way to answer your question. And uh, and and so there were twelve of us, uh, First Nations uh, folks in the room, and uh, and we. Uh, uh, we were going to have an hour and a half or two with, uh, with with Paul Martin, and the only reason I'm a big fan of Paul Martin is I have this image of him meeting Bono uh, way back when because <laughs> yeah. Bono was challenging him on the 0.7%. Yeah, yeah, that? yeah. I remember and that very well. I remember well. being—I think I was at a concert, U2 concert, and Bono's like singing yeah. Paul Martin's praises. Well, you know, I've, I've worked with Paul Martin uh, for a space of time on a committee yeah. for Indigenous education. Yeah. Uh, over the last years, and uh, I've, I mean, I've always had a, a, a respect for Paul. And he was um, wearing his U2 shirt at that. No, time. no, no, he wasn't. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> no, he, he was the chairman of the board, dressed. Okay. Um, yeah. So, at any rate, as we're meeting with, uh, getting prepared for the meeting with Paul yeah. uh, in in the in the West Block and uh, sorting out how we might want to convey some of our concerns and talk about some of the issues and so forth. Uh, you know, wondered what what kind of common ground we would have in terms of our thinking and so forth. So, Paul came in and and with with one of his aides and and uh, sat down and said, "Now, before we begin, I have one comment to make and a question to ask." He said, "My my comment would be this." He said, "I believe we're assembled here today, you First Nations folks and myself, um, and and there is a common foundation of faith uh, between us." And, and he said, I am a practicing Catholic. And, and, he, and he really wanted to emphasize that he was engaged in his Catholic Christian faith. And so that was great to hear. Then he made this interesting statement, asked this interesting question. He said, I, I just have a question, and that is, given all that we have done to you people, why would you want to be Christian? Mm. And before we could say a word, the youngest member of our team, a bit impetuous, spouted off, it's because of Jesus. And, and in, a, in a very real sense, that's what it is. Hmm. So, so Christianity and church have not been good and helpful many times. The institutional expressions, the transactional presentations, 
the the desire to get us quote saved, but pay little if any attention to our our lives other than to be exploited, other than to be assimilated, other than to be um, in many respects abused. But it was Christianity and church, not the teachings of Jesus. So so there's a difference between the person, work, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus and an engagement with the story of Scripture than there is uh, than with the, the sort of institutional presentation of that, if mm-hmm. I can. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it's that that we've engaged with. And, and I mean, I'm a Mi'kmaq person with Akkadian blood polluting, I mean, coursing through my veins. Um, uh, and so I come from both of those, those, those cultures, ultimately, and, uh, although we're a Mi'kmaq family. Uh, the first baptism among my people was June 24, 1610. An ancestor who, together with 21 members of his extended family, so cool. was baptized by Jesse so Fauché. Cool you know that, actually. That's well, awesome. uh, well, I mean, it's, it's part of sort of the way we are is to n- know our history. I'm here because of my history, not because of my future. Yeah. So, so, uh, so that, that's the tradition from which I come. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 405 years ago, 406 years ago this year. It's the tradition from which I come. So when people t- tell me they're a traditional person, I say, so am I. The tr- tradition from which I come is, is Christianity expressed in a Mi'kmaq way. And I, and I emphasize in a Mi'kmaq way. Mi'kmaq Christianity, Mi'kmaq Catholic Christianity looks very different. And while I, I don't engage in the Catholic framework of, of expression of my, uh, my following of Jesus, I engage uh, differently I nonetheless engage in Christian faith as a tradition of our people, and, and not something to be set aside lightly. Uh, you know, the uh, the community of men and women that I associate with may not have exactly that same uh, traditional trajectory, but they experience uh, a Jesus teachings in the same way. So, so again, it's about the person, work, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not about Christianity and the way the church has dealt with that, or individuals for that matter. Do you lose people sort of on both sides of the fence? Sorry for the polarization, because I don't buy into that idea, and I, don't, I know you don't either, but... Yeah, binaries are always a problem. They really are, right, that on so many levels. So they're just anti-relational. Yeah. But do you lose a certain First Nations group, and do you lose a certain sort of Christian-slash-Catholic-slash-Evangelical group because you're... You're kind of dancing in in in, in 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 every world in a sense, right? Because I want to talk about God in a second, or a creator, and and you're you know you call yourself a traditional person. I want to hear a little bit more about that because I'm really interested. Well, you I mean you lose people in part because they don't give you the opportunity to uh, to to talk about uh, not just what you mean but what you experience and why. So they tend to, to, to have a superficial assessment and as a consequence a superficial judgment that they pass. And, and on, you know, I mean, and it is a continuum. It's not a binary necessarily, even in, in terms of its continuum. probably has more circularity to it than anything. Pe- people have a tendency mm, nice. to sort of move around issues, looking at them for a variety of sides. And on any given occasion, they may be over there in the circle and on another occasion over here in the circle looking into the center of this, of this particular issue or situation or what have you. So they tend not to be binaries, but they tend to be these, these continuums that are more circular, I think. If, if, you know, that's how I describe yeah. them. But um, it's because 
on the one hand, you know, there's this historic call. You have to either be Christian or Indian. You can't be an Indian Christian kind of thing. Um, and, and on the other side of the equation is the uh, you have to be a traditional person in terms of your, your experience. And so, so I say to the people who say you can't be an Indian Christian or Christian Indian, you have to choose one way or the other. I say, well, do you have to choose to be non-Caucasian when you come to faith in Christ or when you experience conversion, whatever that looked like or might be? Do you have to set aside all of your culture and, and, and your realities? What are the things that you leave behind? in your culture, in your, in your socio-cultural milieu. And typically, of course, of somebody who's of a Euro-Canadian or Euro-American descent, the, the, you know, the answer is a big fat goose egg, nothing. They bring their economic system, they bring their dress, they bring their musical preferences, they bring the whole darn thing. They, they, they leave beside, or they leave behind, rather, the, the, the morality kinds of things as they see them. They might not uh, smoke, drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls who do, but, you know, but, but apart from that, they bring everything, you know? So, so I say, well, why do we have to leave everything behind? What's, what's, the, what's the reasoning behind that? And it's, it's, it seems quite hypocritical that we would have to do that. On the other side of the equation are our traditional folks. And so I meet people all the time who say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a traditional. I practice the, the spirituality of my, of, my, uh, of my forebears, of my ancestors, and so on. So I'm, I'm full-on traditional. And then right. they get in their car and drive away. Right. right. And, 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 I, and I say, well, just... Come on, don't be so foolish. Right. We live in this bicultural, uh, tricultural, multicultural, and I don't mean the Canadian multicultural sort of reality. We live in compound worldviews. Mm, mm. Our worldviews are not unicultural. Uh, th th they are not in any way, shape, or form today. It'd be difficult to find an indigenous person in North America uh, whose worldview is strictly speaking traditional cultural. Hmm. They engage in the contemporary environment, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of convenience, sometimes as a means of getting along to go along. Um, but so, so the, these purists on both extremes are, 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 are both in awkward positions. And I, and I, so I, I well, find I what... They're kind, of, they're kind of lying to themselves in a way, aren't they? I mean, if, if we really are kind of circular in a sense and compounded in our worldview, uh, the whole notion of polarization or um, the up-down, uh, positive-negative approach really isn't the way we operate. Well, no. And, I mean, if you're a scientist, you say the Heisenberg principle of uncertainty makes us clearly aware that both-and is a more appropriate way of thinking of things than the either-or. Uh, so, so we're both here and there, sometimes at different times, sometimes simultaneously. And, 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 and that's a mystery that I think we should be comfortable with. When, you know, when we're talking about, about God or about the Creator, this is my segue into where you yeah, wanted nice. to go. Thank you. Did you like yeah, that? I did. Very, very impressive. So when we we're don't talking, even need to edit that. Cool. Yeah. When we're talking about God or about the Creator of all things, uh, we're talking about someone who lives in the both-and, who is the author of the both-and, uh, who expresses the reality of I am both fully present in human form in the person of Jesus, but fully present in uh, an other form which you can't begin to comprehend. I am both the creator and at a point in time I have become the created. You know, I mean, it's this mm -hmm. profound mystery. 
the early church fathers and mothers struggled to comprehend, and we still do. It, it's a mystery, and, and this is something we have to be prepared to, to, to embrace, to, to, to understand is that no matter how articulate we are about the faith perspectives we have or about our trite little doctrinal statements or, or what have you, that we, that we only, uh, as well as the Apostle Paul would say, we only see in this glass very, very dimly. There's this huge mystery that extends behind the glass that, that, that we can only begin to hint at. It would, would, would there be many First Nations folk in Canada, in the West, wherever, uh, that you would qualify as, as atheists? Or would most um, First Nations folk land on some kind of a creator, some kind of a spiritual world out there somewhere? Yeah. Well, I couldn't of a certainty say that they don't exist. I can say that I've yet to meet any, and I've yet to meet anybody who has. Hmm. So hmm. Our, our, our usual... It's pretty remarkable, really. Well, sure it is. I, I mean, this is an interesting thing for, for people of an evangelical Christian uh, context who, who are interested in seeing people experience a personal faith in Christ, etc., etc., and they're involved in evangelism and so forth. Oftentimes with Euro-Canadians, Euro-North Euro Americans, and, and so forth these days, they have to start by convincing them that God exists. And typically right. that's not an issue for our folks. You know, there's this truism. I'm a created being, therefore there's a creator. What I see around me was created, therefore someone created it. Um, so there's these truisms. And, and, and I don't mean to be uh, trite and, and unscientific about it. We're less concerned about the method of the creation or the means of the creation or the frame of the creation or otherwise, but somehow this has come together. You know, when I get in my car and drive away, I know someone made the thing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we extend that same well, principle reality. The argument from design is a given, uh, by, uh, by the sounds of it. Well, for us it is. It, it, it's astounding to us to think that somehow when we look in the in, environment around us um, that, that these patterns and symmetries that are so obvious have come about simply by chance process. Uh, and again, uh, we're, we're not overly anxious about uh, length of time and and right. dating and a whole range of other That's things true. that 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 isn't the issue it's just that there there is some intentionality that you can observe um, and uh yeah it so it it uh you know it leads us to understanding the principal attribute um, of of the author of it all as creator and we as creation. What I love is you guys start, you guys start relationally, right? You, 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 you presuppose. Forget about the argument for design. Forget about the philosophical problems or Aristotle's unmoved mover or whatever you want to call it. But you got, you're starting with relationship, yes. which is marvelous. Yes. And well, I, I think most of us do. We just and, don't know it. Well, and, and, you know? and I, well, perhaps. Um, I think that... I think that the post-Enlightenment church um, really began to put more and more of its eggs in the cognitive basket, mm, right. uh, and rationalism became so prevalent that that to step back into an intuitive embrace of of reality, of of spiritual things and so forth, became difficult for them. And even when they did, 
they tended to still be very cognitive. So if you look at the Ignatian spirituality, and there's no disrespect to it by any means or stretch, I think it's been very helpful to many people, but if you look at Ignatian spirituality, there's still a significant cognitive frame around it, still a significant rationalist frame around it. And because the Jesuits were, were the publishers of the, of the Journal of the Enlightenment uh, you know, in the 1700s, I think there's a pretty good reason why <laughs> You know, the, the projected Jesuit spirituality post uh, uh, Ignatius of Loyola became what it became. Um, so, so we tend to back up into relationship, 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 which is why, you know, as I've been teaching uh, my students and others when I get the opportunity, and I'll someday perhaps even write it in a book, I, I think that um, the West has gotten itself in a significant amount of trouble, irrespective of the tradition, Catholic, Protestant, Protestant, mainline, Protestant, evangelical, gotten itself into a significant amount of trouble in defining sin in terms of moral legal mm. issues. Mm -hmm. So the moral legal framework, the Augustinian framework, has been unhelpful, in fact very destructive, uh, partly because we, we, we become self-hypocritical um, in, in it by defining certain kinds of sin. Now, of course, in the Catholic tradition, cardinal, mortal, and venial uh, gradations of sin became very, very common at a period in the, in, in the church, and, and to some still are. The Protestant church hasn't done it quite the same way, but we treat some sins differently than others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yet in a yeah. biblical narrative, in the biblical narrative, we don't find that that's the case. We well, find sin is sin is sin is sin. Yeah. And forget about Christians too, or, or religious folk. Don't don't most of us end up in this spiral into this oh, sure. simple moralistic kind of framework? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's bad, she's good, etc. And and it isn't that morality is not important, or ethics are not important. But but here we we talk ethics not in terms of philosophical ethics, but actual actual ethics, which is about behavior. You know, because ethics is about behavior, the ethic of. You know, ethics isn't some sort of philosophical. Uh, uh, you know, space that we put our heads into to imagine or to wonder, although people do do that, to be sure, ethicists do. But, but we're really asking questions about our behavior. And, and so there's a moral edge to it, uh, uh, to be sure. But, but when we talk about sin, and if you want to do it from a biblical theological frame, uh, as an indigenous person, I look at it and I say in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, which is as the narrative unfolds, you see this wonderful creation the panoply of all of creation living in some kind of harmonious balance, interconnected, interrelated, interdependent. There's some descriptors of that, albeit brief. Uh, and then in the third chapter, the wheels fall off, not because of a moral legal issue, but because our first parents in the narrative choose to break the covenant of harmony and of relationship. And there in the chapter of Genesis, uh, third chapter of Genesis, we find a description of layers of relationship that have now been subjected to, as Paul would later say, futility. So the, the, the relationship between human beings uh, and God and other spiritual powers, and I emphasize other spiritual powers, is devastated. So it's not just a, a vertical relationship with God, but there are other spiritual realities that are part of, of the created order that we've fallen into disharmony with. Uh, some things that we strive to achieve that we ought not to and some things that we should that we don't do. Um, and, and, and so there's this breaking of relationship between ourselves, our Creator, and other spiritual powers. Then, of course, there's the breach of relationship between human beings as expressed in the male and the female, but not limited to them. 
uh, you, you find, for example, in the, in, the, in the breach of relationship, a difference in perspective emerges really quickly. You know, God comes to the man and says, uh, what's this you've done? Uh, where were you? I was looking for you. Uh, we were going to have our daily walk and I couldn't find you. Well, I was naked. Who told you that? Well, the woman you gave me. Mm-hmm. So, so we're fixated on the woman, but we fail to recognize that, that he's blaming God. The yeah. woman you gave me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so well, there's, the, a, there's, there's a whole other kind of willful intention there, right? It's, pr- it's, it's a really interesting distinction yeah. from, a, from a narrative perspective Absolute. of what it actually means to us. Absolutely. So, yeah. so uh, then uh, God good. goes over and says to our first mother, what the heck did you do? Yeah, yeah. Well, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. Yeah. Who's she blaming? Who made the serpent? How did this all come about? So it's, sort, it's again, it's a... Perhaps some would say a more of a tangential blame of God, but it's still very real. And don't we do that still today? Mm-hmm. Whenever something happens we don't like, it, we blame God, and yet we, we resent that he might even remotely treat us like robots in our behavior. So deeply ironic that, you know, I love your phrase about how the breaking of the covenant and the relationship and sort of this is part of the narrative of, of Genesis. And I mean, you know, let's fast forward almost, what, 1900 years to... Uh, the, the troubles we've had here in Canada. Because I'd love to shift gears a little bit and say the anti-relational approach that, that we took towards First Nations communities, mm-hmm. residential schools, the, the, the weaponization of religion or of Christianity in this particular case and, and, the, and the damage it's done. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about that, uh, Terry, in the sense of, geez, I, 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 I want the answers. Yeah. Right? I want the answers. Well, how, how then we, we better stop and go find somebody who That's has. right, yes, yes, or, yeah, yeah, or book another meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no won't be here. Yeah, um, that's right. Maybe well, we need to call Bono. Yeah, maybe we should, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. He, he spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington the oh. year after we did. Oh, so, is that right? Oh, nice. So maybe, nice. maybe, uh, maybe he was one up from us or something. Everything comes back to you yeah. too for me. Yeah. That's, that's all I'm saying. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 with or without you, yes. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I have uh, a certain... Aff- affinity for that but, oh, good. Good. but just to, just to finish because I think it leads yeah, into sure. where we want yeah. where you want to go so so the relational breach God and spiritual powers and humanity humanity uh, human beings with one another not just male and female but humans with one another and then human beings and the rest of creation right that's the third relational breach and nice. people who experience themselves as part of creation, which, quite frankly, Christians tend not to do. When you talk to Christian people, they put creation out there somewhere, and they've stepped back from it as if there's something else. And I say to my students, if you're not part of creation, then what the heck are you? Mm-hmm. you know? so, so if we see ourselves integrated, interrelated, interdependent, it's a different frame. So that relational breach has taken place there in that, in that third chapter of Genesis, and we see that being pushed out, and there's this trajectory towards its continued... Uh, the continued decay of these relationships and efforts uh, of God to provide a framework within which these can begin to be managed in, in, the, in, the, in the law and so on in the, in the biblical narrative. And you certainly see them in other cultures where there are certain mores and morals and values and standards and practices that come into existence in other cultures that are, that are not biblical cultures, not, not biblically literate cultures prior to, to you know, the... the uh, Europeanization of m- much of the world, um, who also have these mores, these values, these standards, these ideas about right behavior that are seeking to 
restore broken relationship and maintain the balance of good relationship, mm. which is really mm. what, it, what, what a lot of it is about. So if we change the definition of sin uh, from its moral legal, which really isn't a very good biblical frame anyway, uh, to understanding the relationships that are severed, we actually get to where you're wanting to go, which is to talk about why First Nations people were treated the way they were. So they were treated the way they were, A, because they were considered uncivilized, because they didn't possess in the European mindset a level of technological sophistication uh, that allowed for them to be described as civilized, whether that was a text-driven culture, although even cultures that were text-driven were considered uncivilized, uh, whether that was uh, the, the technologies of things like gunpowder or ships sailing or uh, a particular way of organizing societies around hierarchical authorities and so forth, all, all of those things uh, weren't in their minds present, therefore we were uncivilized. So there's that. There's the idea that our behavior did not conform to the behavior that the Europeans thought important. And by that I don't mean it was evil or immoral. In fact, if you read the writings of the earliest missionaries, the Jesuits, the Recollets, uh, the, the, the Franciscans, etc., whether here or elsewhere, they will extol the virtues. They don't give themselves to the lust after things and possessions and material goods. They don't kill people to get their stuff, generally speaking, although I'm sure there were those circumstances where it happened. You know, so there are a variety of things that you can find written by the very missionaries who were here saying we were uncivilized. Mm. That, that lead you to a different conclusion if you, mm -hmm. if you bother to step back mm -hmm. from the frame of reference that they've already offered you. Uh, so, so we didn't fit. Uh, point number one, uncivilized. Point two, a morality in their minds that was not the same as theirs. A behavior that was not the same as theirs. Goals and objectives and values that weren't the same as theirs. And then lastly, but most significantly, uh, although there is the myth of uh, uh, migration to North America and elsewhere for religious freedom, that was really quite secondary to the real issue for migration, and that was to acquire wealth. Mm. So the, the papal bulls that assigned to the king and queen, uh, respectively of Spain and Portugal, dividing the world into Portuguese territory and Spanish territory, and then the ones that followed subsequently with France, and then Britain's uh, engagement in Belgium and Holland and, and so forth, all of them were about wealth. The migrations were about acquiring wealth. To be sure, Europe was overpopulated for what it could support, so there was a need to get people out and all of those kinds of things, but it really was about substantial wealth. So the way to deal with us is to Christianize us and civilize us and get us out of the way so that the land becomes available. And that's yes. still the attitude God, that prevails God today. Greed, or greed over God. That's still the attitude that prevails today when you talk about mm. First Nations people blocking, uh, disagreeing with the development of natural resource today that will pollute the waters, that will force them off lands that they've lived on for thousands of years and all of that. The folks down south, in particular south, who want that development to happen want to push people yet again off their land so development can proceed because it's about wealth. It's about money. It's about financial security. 
The curious thing, this is a bit of an aside. I just heard a study about, since the, the U.S. election is in full blossom uh, in the campaign, I just heard an interesting study about republicanism and evangelicalism mm. and the correlation between the two in the U.S. And most people think that it's about the religious values of rep Republicans, so that the Republican candidates want to, want to appeal to this large voting block of evangelicals, conservative, big E evangelicals in the U.S. Um, but the study indicates that the concern that the big E evangelical has has less to do, significantly less to do, with the religious values than it does with the financial values. Yes. So, so those values that drove <clears throat> European colonization and the subjugation and attempted assimilation of first peoples in various lands are still active today. So can we blame the raving free market capitalists? Is that what we're saying here? And I'm mean, tongue-in-cheek, right? I'm kind of joking, but at the same time, I mean... It's this, is it an individual, this individual pursuit of wealth and gain and disregard for the other? Well, it I mean, certainly, it sounds it like certainly it. is individualism as a part of it. Uh, I mean, when you look at, uh, at the, the father of modern economics, Adam Smith, and his articulation of, of the principles of the free market, uh, his, his clearly articulated uh, ideology is that each individual should pursue their own self-interests to the best of their ability. For in doing so, uh, they create the market economy and the potential for uh, trickle-down. Not, not a trickle-down to the, to the impoverished, but a trickle-down so that the market continues to grow. So, so here's an interesting thing. We prosecuted Bernie Madoff uh, because of, of, of the, the big Ponzi scheme that Bernie perpetrated. But ask yourself the question, when we're marketed to with greater and greater and greater uh, individualism uh, in the marketing approach. So they market to David Peck, not to Terry LeBlanc, mm -hmm. when, they, when they pop up on, on your Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg is earning lots of money on the advertising, not on the fact that you've got 5,332 friends. Uh, so it, it, it increasingly individualizes, and you have to get more and more people in at the bottom so that fewer and fewer can benefit at the top, the one in 99. Mm -hmm. If that's not a Ponzi scheme, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Right, because the effort is to market to us, so that we consume more. By consuming more, we need more production. More production means more people. More people mean higher profits. And if that's not a Ponzi scheme, I'm not sure what is. That's free market economy. We have to wrap it up in a few minutes, and I would love to talk a little bit about reconciliation, the residential school uh, situation, and and maybe even I don't know a challenge to the to, to my listenership and to me personally. You know what what is it that that average Canadians can do, you know, over and above donating to organizations, over and above um, bringing up this as a conversation and staying uh, informed. I mean, clearly the residential school situation right now is, is becoming more and more of an issue for the Trudeau government. Seems like they're taking it uh, uh, on in a, in, a, in a respectful way. I hope they are. I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, I know that, um, yeah, anyway, so, so can, you, can you give us a, a, your insight there? <coughs> Well, I, I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is the most recent of a series of commissions that have consistently brought towards, uh, brought forward to the Canadian public the treatment of First Nations, Inuit, Métis peoples in Canada that has been unjust. Uh, the TRC 
uh, brought to our attention the residential schools era, the survivors' uh, stories, uh, the stories of, of pain and suffering, the stories of uh, people taken from their families and, and uh, uh, spirited away to places at a distance where they were indoctrinated with, as, as one of my staff would say, indoctrinated with pe another people's language, culture, and history as if their own didn't exist. Mm. Uh, That's good. And, and even if there were no cases of sexual abuse, physical abuse, or other kinds of abuse, the fact that one people group thought they had the right to take our children from us and take them at a distance from us, prevent us from seeing them and parenting them and being their families for 16 uh, uh, years of their life in some cases, 12 for many, 10 for others, is itself obscene. It's obscene. Absolutely it's obscene. It's utterly outrageous. You know, you watch, I watch some of these older films on uh, whatever they might be historically, and, and you kind of go, how did anyone ever think that was a good idea? Yeah. I, you know, I just yeah. don't get it. So the TRC published 94 recommendations and a narrative surrounding those recommendations. And what people can do who are listening to this is to pick up a copy of the recommendations in the report of the TRC and become familiar with it. Nice. And as they read it, ask themselves the question, what do I personally need to do for any of these to implement them? What do I need to do with the groups of people that I associate with or the organizations I'm involved in to bring them to the fore? How can I begin to implement the, dis the, the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report? There are 94. Uh, the church particularly named in, in number 57 through 63, uh, and, and uh, although in other places as well, but those 57 through 63, what do you do about that mm. individually in your congregation, in your community? How do you implement those recommendations? How do you engage with First Peoples to understand the context in which those recommendations have been issued? Uh, th those are things that are very pragmatic, very practical okay. things that That's can good. be done. And, and to the extent that people will engage them with seriousness and educate themselves about the residential schools through the report and the recommendations, they will be prepared to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Um, you have a meeting coming up with, I believe, Jesse James. So um, yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. Um, this Indian boy is going to go meet with Jesse <laughs> James. Right. Yes. So we need to wrap it up, and we're going to have to do part two. But are you hopeful? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. Uh, and, and I'm hopeful for a, a very particular reason. When the apology was issued in 2008, I was gathered with a number of my colleagues, uh, and we watched the apology unfold. And that day in the House of Commons, uh, the Canadian government minted a new coin. And, and the coin had imprinted on the one side these words, we were wrong. And the Prime Minister then Getting a shiver. Uh, said, we failed in a whole range of ways. We were wrong. Our folks have picked up the coin and turned it over and they found inscribed on the other side these words. We were right. We were right to resist. We were right to seek to preserve our languages and culture. We were right uh, to fight for our rights under treaty. We were right to pursue our unique status in the Canadian Constitution Act of 1982. We were right to do that. And that's going to bring a great deal of freedom to our people, a release to our people uh, going forward that will enable them to see a brighter future. So I'm very hopeful. I'm also very hopeful because the, for the first time, 
uh, uh, any commission since I've been alive uh, that has addressed the issues of the Aboriginal community in Canada, for the very first time, I hear people taking the TRC seriously mm. and the recommendations seriously. That's good. So I'm very hopeful. Uh, your website, uh, tell us about that, how to get there. You could go to www.indigenouspathways.com. And there you would be able to be taken to all three of the, the program frameworks that we work within, and uh, we'd be happy. We're doing our annual symposium uh, uh, focusing on Indigenous education here at Tyndale University College and Seminary on Bayview, uh, June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. People are welcome to come. There's a registration fee. We've got to make a few bucks uh, yes. to pay for it. Rich beyond your wildest dreams. Fortunately, yeah. but, yeah. but uh, I think it would be an eye-opener for people Good. to come and Good. engage with us. Well, and, and, see we'll, what we're and all we'll about. talk about that on on the site. We'll stick it in the bio, the bio, uh, and uh, we'll tweet about it as well for whatever that's worth. Good. But, uh, uh, Terry LeBlanc uh, with us today, director of Nate's, author, teacher, and doctor actually, Doctor Terry <laughs> LeBlanc. Thanks for thanks God will get you for that, that's David. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for joining us today. Terry. Thanks, David. 